All right, so <clears throat> I'm, somebody, I'm somebody that I need my Christian faith, my Christian faith, I need my Christian faith to be anchored and centered in Jesus himself, okay, which you're probably going, isn't that why we're here? <laughs> like, that's, that's a little cliche, a little obvious, but, but here's what I mean. I, I really, I need a faith that's anchored in the person of Jesus, in Jesus himself, and Here's why I need a Christian faith that's anchored in Jesus himself is because I'm the kind of person that there are all sorts of moments in my life where a particular lie gets in my head. And the the lie that gets in my head is kind of like, I'm going to lose my salvation. Or the lie, really, it's gotten more specific in recent years. And the lie is kind of like, I'm going to just all of a sudden walk away from the Christian faith. Right? I, I just get this lie in my head. I know why it's there. I grew up with lots of religious voices around me basically saying those kinds of things to me all the time. Even before I had like a fully formed or even really beginning forms of a faith, there were religious Christian voices saying this stuff to me. And so now at 35, I'm stuck with this baggage where this lie just kind of creeps in my head sometimes where I'm just like, I, I, I'm going to walk away one day. I'm just like, it's just this fear, this anxiety, like this spiritual anxiety. And I, I don't have it in my head all the time. I'm not hearing it all the time. Uh, but I, but it, there's moments, there's seasons in life where it gets louder. Like, honestly, it gets loud in my head when, when someone kind of like questions me in a way where they're like, they want me to like prove myself to them. And this is not just other Christians that do this to me, this is just humans. Like, we humans are in the business, or maybe this is a, just a cultural thing or our cultural moment right now, but I, I, I have a sense that it's happened throughout human history, but we are just in the business of being like, prove yourself to me. Before I will trust you, before I think you're good, before I think you're okay, prove yourself to me. Now, some of that makes sense, why we, why, why we do that. But anytime someone is in my life and they are like, prove yourself, prove yourself that you're a good enough human, prove yourself that you're a good enough pastor, prove yourself that you're a good enough Christian, this lie gets amplified in my head. Because I kind of just, I'm like, there's just part of me going like, I'm not going to be able to prove myself to you. Like, I just don't, I'm not good enough. Like, I'm not going to meet your standard. That's when the lie gets louder in my head. It also gets louder when I just have some kind of like doubt creep up in my head. Some kind of doubt where I'm just, it could be something biblical, it could be some idea in the Bible, it could be, you know, the thing we all wrestle with a lot is like, why is there evil in the world and yet God is good and all powerful? Like, this is a common thing to wrestle with. And those that have never wrestled with that right now, they're going, wait a second, like, (laughs) you just gave me something new to wrestle with. And so that lie that I'm just going to, like, walk away from the faith gets louder in my head when, when one of those two scenarios happening and I kind of walk around with almost like a spiritual anxiety or, you know, something like just the spiritual heaviness and weight, like, man, I'm just, it's almost like I feel like I'm a fraud. Even though I got nothing going on, like, I, I'm, I think I'm being honest when I say this, I don't have like some secret sin or some secret thing going on, like, I just, it, it just creeps into my life because of these different religious voices I heard when I was a kid. And I, I'm sure that the enemy, I'm sure that Satan takes advantage of that in these different moments. And so that's a little bit about me. And I know some of you in the room, you totally get this because you're going, 
Oh, that happens to me too. And then some of you in the room, you literally have the gift of faith. In the, in the Bible, it labels faith as a spiritual gift. Some of you have the gift of faith. You're going, what is wrong with this guy? <laughs> like, should he be a pastor? And listen, I, I could just choose not to share stories like this, but I, I grew up with a version of Christianity that uh, Christians never struggled where we never went through valleys. And so now, when Christians my age are going through valleys and having struggles, they think they have to walk away from the faith. And so part of why I'm being a little bit intentional in sharing the struggle with you guys, because I want us to have a vision for the Christian faith where there are valleys, where there are low points. There are other moments where you feel spiritually heavy, where you feel unsure. And so this lie gets in my head, I feel like a fraud, and I just realize in those moments what the Holy Spirit, I think, really shows me is I need a faith centered in Jesus. I need a faith rooted in him, not as an idea, as a person, as a reality, as someone who really came to earth. Here's why I know that. Almost every time I start to feel this feeling of like, oh man, I'm just going to walk away. It seems like the Lord just shows me like, no, you love me, Anthony. Like, I've loved you, and now you love me, right? So this is how it happened recently for me. I uh, was feeling this way, feeling this heaviness, and I was on YouTube, and there's a clip from, yeah, there's a clip from The Chosen, uh, which I've talked about a lot. If you don't know The Chosen, it's a show depicting the life and ministry of Jesus and him with his disciples. I think it is the best, like, movie or film a depiction of Jesus that I've ever seen, right? There's a lot of bad ones out there. And so I, I, I haven't even watched the whole series, but I, I've seen some episodes and I'll just click, click, I'll click on like random snippets. And so I, cl- I click on this random snippet of Jesus and it's this scene of, in Luke 4 where Jesus is kind of announcing his ministry in a really interesting way. He goes to church, he goes to synagogue. And he gets up to do a reading, and he reads from Isaiah, and he reads that beautiful passage in Isaiah where Isaiah says, I have come to bring good news to the poor, to heal the blind and the deaf, to free the captives, to free the oppressed. And he reads it, and he closes the scroll, and he goes, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the chosen scene is awesome, <laughs> because Jesus just does that. And everybody in the room is like, wait, What? Keep reading. Everybody's kind of freaking out. And Jesus is like, no, I'm him. That's what I'm trying to tell you guys. And this, is, this actually is in the synagogue of his hometown. So everybody knows him. And everybody's seen him growing up. And they're like, Jesus, come on, man. <laughs> like, what's happened to you? Why are you crazy now? And here's what began to happen as I watched that scene. That scene has really nothing to do with what I'm talking about today. But that's the scene. <laughs> it's just a good one. Uh, that's the scene I watched. As I watched that scene, my heart swooned. As I watched that scene, tears came down my face. Because, and I know it's the actor, but he is representing the real Jesus in some way. Like Jesus really did that in a synagogue. He really said that in a synagogue. There's some liberties, of course, but for the most part, it's like pretty accurate to what Jesus did. And I realized as I was feeling this kind of spiritual weight, this spiritual heaviness, I was going, that's my Lord. That's my Jesus. That's, that's my king. That, that's, that's who anchors me when I feel like the lies are, are going to overtake me. That's who's holding me. That's who's bigger than me. I love him only because he loved me first. 
And so I need this faith that's anchored in Jesus himself because way too often my faith is just anchored in my head. Anchored with how, how I'm going through a doubt or how I could conquer a doubt or whatever it might be. I need a faith that is anchored in Jesus himself because he's real. He's not just a fun idea. If you're here and you're like, man, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm here and I'm, I'm going to this church because they just like really look up to Jesus. No, I think Jesus is real. I think he really came. I think he really is the son of God. I think he really is life itself. And so I need a faith that's anchored in Jesus himself. That's the only thing that keeps me going in those moments, which are some of you know, the darker moments of faith, the darker moments of living in this world until he returns. Today we're wrapping up 1 John. We've been in this letter for a number of weeks now. We're wrapping up this series that, that John writes this letter to these, this church, and probably churches he's connected to, clarifying some things, talking through all sorts of topics. And so we're going to go all through chapter 5 today. Part of why we're going all through chapter 5 is I, I wanted to start Revelation early, punish myself soon, uh, sooner. Um, but we're going all through chapter 5 today, and what we're going to see in chapter 5 is John anchors all of his arguments that he's been making, he anchors all of them in Jesus himself. He's been talking a lot about God and how God works in the world and speaks in the world. He anchors that in Jesus. He's been talking a lot about sin and how the the church should look out for sin and watch out for particular sins, and he anchors that in Jesus. He's been talking a lot about love all throughout the letter, and he anchors that in Jesus himself. And so what I love about 1 John is it's a faith anchored in Jesus. It's anchored in a real person. You can just sense it. When John is writing this stuff down or when you're reading it, you're just like, he really believed in Jesus as a real person. He's not trying to win people over to ideologies. He's trying to get people to see Jesus. He's trying to get people to see the God of the universe. Sure, the God of the universe will change us and make us do all of these things, but because of uh, how we've been loved. But it's not an ideological war. It's a, it's a personal battle for our hearts to see who God is. And so I love how First John ends because it's just anchored in Jesus. It's anchored in him. All of John, all of these arguments that John's been making that you, like, you might not see are connected to Jesus. John goes, no, they are connected to him. I'm talking about these things because of how they're connected to him. And so this is what we're going to do today. We're going to read chapter 5. We're going to go all through chapter 5 together. And we're going to see four things. We're really going to see four ways that John connects the different arguments he's been making to Jesus. So the first thing we're going to see, we're going to see how John connects the witness of God, the witness of God and the the Holy Spirit who is God, to Jesus. We're going to see how John connects his words about sin that he's been saying all throughout this letter to Jesus and his work. We'll see how John connects love to Jesus. That's the third thing we'll see. And then the fourth thing we'll see, we'll see how John connects life itself to Jesus. Life itself to Jesus. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read all of 1 John chapter 5. It's 21 verses. That's why I'm taking a drink. Um, I, here, here's what I know. Reading a whole chapter of the Bible is a task in foolishness in this culture. 
uh, especially with those of us who are on social media too much and we have you know, the attention spans of, of a, you know, an older goldfish. And so, but I just think sometimes when I get the opportunity to just read the whole chapter and we have time for it, it's just good for us. It's good for us to kind of train in that discipline of like listening to the word and reading a lot of it at once instead of kind of going the way of our culture and only liking small snippets of it at a time. And so I'm going to read the whole chapter. And I encourage us to practice that discipline of listening to the word and hearing what, it, what it's saying to us in different ways. But here, know this. If you, you know, if you kind of uh, not doze off, but if you zone out, and all of a sudden you're not paying attention, that's okay. Just all of a sudden, when you notice that you've zoned out, just zone back in if you can. And try to listen to these words. And part of why I want to read the whole chapter is a lot of the things that John is talking about, they're all kind of interconnected. Like he'll be talking about one thing, but it's connected to this other thing. And so I could split it up and read different verses, but I'd rather just read it all at once. Let, the, let what he's saying kind of wash over us so we see the whole kind of argument, the whole line of thinking that he's making there. And then kind of talk through those four different ways he's connecting his arguments to Jesus. So, First uh, John chapter 5, we'll be in verse 1. It'll take us a bit here to read it, but I'm going to read the whole thing. Just adjusting my mic. Sorry, guys. I'm, I've got small ears. I've got to put it on tight. So, All right, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And then everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children, when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. The one who has the son has life. The one who does not have the son of God does not have life. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one. That is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. 
He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourself from idols. Take another drink. I think I lost some water weight right then. Okay, so John chapter 5 is connecting all these arguments he's been making to Jesus. Let's look at the first way that he connects the arguments he's been making to Jesus. He makes this connection between God's testimony in the world, God the Father's, and God the Holy Spirit's testimony in, in the world. And he connects it to Jesus. You see this all through verses 5 through 11. Essentially, John is saying God's testimony is Jesus. Like the Holy Spirit is testifying about what he's doing in the world and how he's doing it is Jesus. It's through Jesus. Essentially, John here is saying that God is trying to talk to you. He's trying to reach you. And he's trying to do it by telling you about Jesus. Because then if you get more of Jesus, you'll understand who God is and what he's about. And he says that those that, that believe in Jesus and listen to Jesus's, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings about Jesus, that they are listening to God himself. That's what he's saying here. He makes this huge connection about God's work in the world to Jesus. He's basically saying God's work in the world is Jesus. Jesus has unfolded the climactic moment of God's work in the world, and he will continue to unfold it. God wants to talk to you. God wants to reach you, and how he has done it in history is through Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is the most famous human ever. I could be wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure he is the most famous human across the globe. Obviously, there are places that don't know about Jesus, but Jesus is the most famous human ever. And I think he's famous because of this. I think God the Father, God the Holy Spirit are trying to reach the world with the testimony of Jesus. That's kind of what this is saying. It's saying God is trying to testify. God is being a witness to his son and his works. When I think we really, as humans, take the Christian side out of it. As humans, we should really wrestle with the fact, how did this guy from Nazareth become the most famous human ever? How is it possible? I think it's because God is witnessing and testifying, and talking about, and trying to reach the world with Jesus, with his son, who is indeed God himself as well. God wants you to know him, so he sent and arrived as Jesus. That's the Trinity, we can't get into it right now. But everybody has to wrestle with this idea. What if God has reached into history, and what if the way he reached into history was by coming as Jesus of Nazareth. What if that's how God has reached into history? You have to wrestle with that, or you at least have to wrestle with, why is this guy the most famous guy ever? What's going on there? How, how is he the most famous guy ever? I think it's because he's God. I think it's because he's trying to reach us. I think it's because he's trying to talk to us. I think it's because he wants us to know him, because we were made to know him. I think it, he wants us to know him because he loves us. John says here, 
with this first connection between God's testimony and Jesus himself. He says, you can find and know God. It's Jesus. So this is the first way. This is the first connection that John makes to the arguments he's been making in this letter to Jesus. Let's look at the second connection. The second connection is this, this conversation that John has been having all throughout the letter about sin. So he connects this conversation about sin to Jesus. John says this. He says, anyone who believes in Jesus has been born of God, and then later he says in, in the same chapter, those who've been born of God, they do not sin. Now we have to remember, he's not making the claim that Christians never sin or else no one in here would be a Christian. If that's the claim he's making, it'd be like, we haven't figured it out, we're just, you know, this is a club. But he's, he's using a style of rhetoric that's known in that day. Some call it the style of uh, apocalyptic, where he uses extremes to make a point that's motivating. So what, essentially what he has been in the letter saying is sin has been so serious to God, sin has been so serious to Jesus, that Jesus had to use his own life to defeat it. And so because of that, sin and idolatry, they are serious things that the Christian needs to watch for. They are serious things that the community of God has to watch for together. So much so that when we see fellow brothers and sisters in Christ sinning, we pray for them and ask God to, to bring them out of them. And we make sure, the, the very last line of the letter, we make sure to keep ourselves from idols. So before we talk about this idea of sin being serious to us as Christians and as the church, let's, let's just talk about this, that really confusing verse in verse 16. I'm not covering everything in, in chapter 5, obviously, today. Like, you probably are wondering about the water and the blood and all that kind of stuff. We're not even going to get there. But, uh, but I, I want to talk about this verse, in, uh, this confusing verse in verse 16, because I, I think it's a one people often are like, what is that about? And it's this verse that says... Okay, pray for the person that's sinning, but the one that's sinning in a way that leads to death, don't pray for them, right? Like, John, you're a harsh pastor. <laughs> like, uh, so the, whoever is sinning in a way that leads to death, don't pray for them. Uh, so this is verse 16. It's very confusing. There's been all sorts of doctrines created out of this verse or ideas about this verse. Here's what I'm going to tell you about this verse. Here's what I think about this verse. I think nobody knows what this verse means, okay? That's, that's really what I think. So if you're going, what does this verse mean? What does this verse mean? Nobody knows, okay? I've been looking at this verse for years. I've been looking at different scholars on this verse for years. Nobody knows what this verse means. And if they know what it means, they don't know that they know what it means. <laughs> like, the, nobody knows what this verse means. Uh, we are unsure what's going on. John is speaking to something that was happening probably with that anti-Christ group that we've been talking about throughout uh, this letter. Something was going on. He's speaking maybe to something to that. We don't know what he's speaking to. And so when you read that verse, you're kind of like, what does that mean? And maybe you're even freaking out a little bit. Just know this. There are a handful of verses in the Bible that because we're 2,000 years away, because we can't talk to the author in the flesh, uh, or out of the flesh either, um, <laughs> We just won't know what the verse means. This is one of those verses. There's a handful in the Bible like that. I wish I could be up here and be like, no, they're all. Like, no, there's some that are just confusing. This is, this is one of them. But, so I, I just, we shouldn't get stuck on that. Don't get stuck on that verse and trying to figure out this. Here's what we should get stuck on, though, at the end of this letter. And this is what John has been saying throughout this letter. For those of us that trust in Jesus. That's another way to translate believe. For those of us that trust in Jesus. For those of us that are securely held in his love, 
We take sin and idolatry seriously. Sin is living life the way it's not meant to be lived. Sin, even as a power in the world, is essentially when things are not the way they're supposed to be, not the way that God intended them to be. Idolatry is worshiping anything that is not the the triune God of the universe. And John says both of those things are important for the Christian and the Christian community as a whole together to watch out for. This, that, that, what I just said, this tends to be the part of the Christian faith that those in our culture and even us in this room, we kind of don't like this part. This tends to be, the, like those in the culture really hate this part of the faith. For us to say that there's sin and that we as humans have sin, that's not, that's not really encouraged in our culture. In fact, that, there's all sorts of words used. That even they'll say that's like an abusive idea. That's a harmful idea to think this. And so when, we're, when we see this in the letter and we talk about that as Christians, we, we have to understand why there's such a strong resistance to it. It's because of this. The second any time we start to say, hey, there's sin in us, there's sin in everybody, that produces guilt. Right? This happens just, you, you know this in normal conversations. If someone comes up to you and tries to correct you about something, that can produce a feeling of guilt. And guilt is crushing. The feeling of guilt is crushing. It really is. In fact, most therapists in the world today, they say, you want to know the mark of like emotional maturity is how well does that person deal with guilt or feelings they don't like, but guilt being one of those feelings in particular. In fact, often emotionally immature people, therapists say, are people that cannot deal with their guilt very well. So guilt is soul crushing. And so when the average human hears this idea, especially in our cultural context, that that sin is real and they begin to feel this guilt, they would rather just reject the idea completely so that the feelings of guilt go away. But what if there is sin in us? What if there is evil in us? What if we do worship things that are not God, not things that we were not created to worship, things that end up ruling us and are harmful for us. What if all of that is true, even though this conversation can make us feel bad? Wouldn't those things need to be dealt with? Here is the beauty of Jesus. He, in chapter 5 here, through John, says, you can deal with your sin and your idolatry only because I have dealt with it. Jesus himself has dealt with it. So when he invites us to deal with it ourselves, it's because he goes, I've dealt with it. That's why you can. In fact, he goes, I'll I'll go even further for you guys. You don't need me to just have dealt with it in the past. You need ongoing help from me. So when you see it in your midst, when you see it in the church, pray to me, talk to me. Petition to me so I can help you deal with it in the present as well. In fact, I would say that throughout the New Testament, the message we get from Jesus is this. You don't have to let the guilt crush you because Jesus let the guilt crush him. We as Christians, we take sin and we take idolatry seriously. You've seen that all throughout 1 John. It is very hard to avoid that idea. But we do it from a place of complete love. 
complete security that Jesus has bought. He has bought that security with his blood. That's why we can deal with this stuff. And so one of the closing thoughts from John and how he connects it to Jesus is he goes, we take sin and idolatry seriously because Jesus took it seriously. All right? All right, he makes another connection. He makes this connection between love. He's been constantly talking about living out love, and he makes this connection of love to Jesus. Because, it says this, because we believe in Jesus and we've been born of God, we now love, I'm paraphrasing, like Jesus loves. And in fact, that is our obedience. In fact, when, when you connect John's argument in chapter 5 to the end of chapter 4, it seems to be this is what he's saying. It seems the author is saying loving people is obeying God and obeying God is loving people. When we obey God's command to love, we are loving him and loving people. That seems to be the argument that he's making through John in general, but through 4 and 5 of 1 John. And so Christian, look at me. If you are not furiously fighting to love, you've missed a major point of this letter. Right? Too many of us, I think too many of us, we come to church and our goal for church and how we live as Christians is not love, but it's dogma. I'll even say this. I think people that don't even go to church, their goal for life is not love, but it's dogma. God is inviting us into love because he has first loved us. Here, here's what I mean by dogma uh, and why I think Religious people follow dogma, and non-religious people follow dogma. I think dogma is any rule, any way of life that makes you think that the harsh human way of life is the right way to deal with things, or is a far better way to deal with things than the Jesus love way of life. These are a lot of my conversations as a Christian over, the, over my life. What should we do? What should, we should love. Well, what about that? We should love. What about we should love? Right? The, this, the, it's funny to me that, that sometimes this idea of love being so primary for the, for the Christian has become this kind of like, for lack of a better word, like progressive Christianity. Like, oh, that's like a you know, slippery slope if, if love is, is, is the primary act of the Christian. I just go, I think actually these people are very biblical. All throughout this letter, John has been arguing this. He's been saying love is what we are called to do. And we love because our love is connected to Jesus because Jesus has first loved us. And so if we don't love each other, we have a problem. And so much so that this portion at the beginning of chapter 5 says obeying God's commands is, is love in a sense. Now, I'll, I'll tell you this. This is maybe a little bit nerding out. In the Greek, it's actually the scholars kind of go like, hey, what is going on there? Is it talking about just God's general commands or what? And at least the scholar, Karen Jobes, who I really love, she says it seems to be God is saying the command in reference there is the command to love one another. So we as Christians, because Jesus has loved us, we love. We don't live under dogma. We root dogma out of us. We love. That's obeying God. To the Christian, we've talked about that. We're compelled by love. We can't help but love. 
And I love how John says, this is not a burden for us. When the, when the spirit is rooting out idolatry and sin in us, this is, this is not a burden. Loving becomes easy for us in one sense, even in the times where it's difficult. And so we can't miss this point. I think John himself would be mad at me if I didn't say this. Our Christian faith should be animated by love. We are animated by the spirit of love. So our Christian faith and how we live in this world should be animated by love. Amen? All right, I'm not done. I'm just making you say amen. Um, one last, one last connection the author makes to Jesus. He makes connection, he connects true life to Jesus himself. He connects true life to Jesus himself. I want to reread verses 11 and 12. This is what he says in verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. One of the things we've gotten in and from Jesus is life. Not just any life, eternal life. Which is more, in my opinion, as I've studied this over the years, it's more than just living forever. It's life to the fullest. Life in Jesus is life to the fullest. It's, it means that th what he's talking about here is one day we will get to live life without sin. One day we will get to live life in the presence of God. And we'll get to do that forever. And right now, as we trust in Jesus, and anybody that trusts in Jesus gets a taste of this life that we, that we have in and through Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean life isn't hard or we don't have to experience the, the brokenness of this world, the sinfulness of this world affect us in different ways. We do because God is on a mission to, to bring all into him that are going to trust in him and we wait in this time where the world just sucks until then. Like, it's part of what God is doing in history. But here's what I've noticed as a Christian the moments where life has felt the fullest, where it's felt like I'm living life to the fullest, has been because of Jesus. It's because of what he's doing in my life, because of what he's revealing to me, what he's showing to me, how he's just in, in a moment showing me my, like my and our connection to him. If you want life, you're only going to find it in Jesus. Look at the last however many thousand years of human history. Humans are constantly trying to find life, and they don't. They can't. You can pick anything. You're not going to find life. It might be fun for a time. It might feel life-giving for a season, but it won't be eternally life-giving. Only Jesus is eternally life-giving. And the astonishing, the astonishing thing that John says is we, as Christians, have a taste of that now. In fact, I think he just says we have it now. We have it now. We get life because of Jesus. We have life itself, life as it's meant to be because of Jesus. Life itself is connected to Jesus. One of the reasons I, the one of the reasons I like to talk to people about Jesus, it's because I want them to have the life that I found in him. I can remember the years before I found life in Jesus. And I can remember how I was trying to find life in different things. I was, I, was, I was remembering how life just felt like death. 
You hear that song, you have redeemed my soul from the pit of emptiness. I was a burned down forest, I was a drowned out river, or a dried up river, I was something else. That was what life felt like and seemed like. No matter how happy I tried to be, no matter how much I pursued happiness. It was only when I found Jesus that I realized what life really is. Because he is life. He's holding all life together. He wants to give us life. That's part of Jesus' mission is to give us the resurrection that he himself has. And I think John wanted his people and those beyond his people to hear that too. We have life itself because of Jesus. We can only have life because of Jesus. I really believe that. Those searching for meaning in here, those searching for life in here, I, I, I want to unabashedly tell you you can only find it in Jesus. He's the only one you can find it in. That's why I'm here. That's why there's volunteers that get up and just play the piano for us and stuff like do all this stuff. It's because we found life in Jesus. That's why. So church, John's talked about this, this precious gift that we've been given. That's Jesus himself, the son of God, God in the flesh. What are you going to do with that gift that God has given us? And then if you're in here and you're, you're kind of just checking this church thing out or a friend guilt tripped you into coming or I, I, I want to challenge you. What are, what are you going to do with the gift that you've been offered from God himself? I think God's offering that gift to you. What are you going to do with that? So church, may we deal with our sin, may we deal with our idolatry from the place of security and love that we have only because of Jesus. May we obey God by truly loving each other. And may we see that Jesus is true life and eternal life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for life. Thank you for yourself. Thank you that we made, God, we just, we made a mess of things. I, uh, and some of us might want to say, well, no, it was humans before us. But God, I help make a mess of things. I help make this world worse. I help promulgate sin here, God. I thank you that even though I bring death very often into this world in different ways, you bring life. Very often I bring hate and you bring love. And not just love to the world, but love to me. God, you're way too merciful. You're way too kind. You're way too patient. You're way too gracious with us. I pray that what you want to speak through 1 John, we hear. Give us ears to hear, God, as we close up this series. What are you wanting to say to us? Help us to hear it. Help us to believe it. Help us to trust in you. God, we love you and we need you. Amen.